Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. So this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 50. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 23 in the New Testament. And the last time the message was titled, The Greatest Paradox, and it really was a paradox. I mean, if you ever study, you're a history person and you study Roman crucifixion, it's a horrible, disgusting form of capital punishment. The Lord died for our sins. He shed His blood for the remission of our sins. Something very horrible for some of His followers to watch. And just the way they treated even the bodies afterwards when they were done with the crucifixion victims. The great paradox is something that heinous turned out to give pardons if, if mankind is willing, men and women... Uh, if they would receive Christ, there's a pardon through that shedding of blood for the remission of our sins. And, you know, it was just very powerful. We talked about soteriology, which is the study of salvation. We even talked about anatomy and physiology, the different body parts that were affected uh, by the crucifixion process, the pain that it would have caused, the visceral organs, the heart, and, you know, the other organs trying to make up for the, for the trauma that the crucifixion victim was dealing with. And at any time, you know, Yeshua could have come down from the cross, but he stayed because of his love for you and me. And I can't stress that enough. Today, the message is titled, He is Risen. Yes, he is. He is. He was. He's, <laughs> he's alive. Right? Uh, fully God, fully man, shed his blood for the remission of our sins, and he is risen. So we're going to talk about the details that the, the Bible gives and just... You know, for me, when I read, I mean, I'm in my 50s, but when I read the Bible, I'm like a child in that I get so excited about the details. You know, I like to do the, uh, teach the Bible in a chronological fashion, right? What came first? What came next? What are the sequence of events taking all the four Gospels together? So uh, we're going to go through that, and we're going to look at that in four parts. So jumping in from where we left off the last time, verse 50 in chapter 23, it says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed, meaning the rest of the council or some of the council members, uh, we could say the Sanhedrin, who took control over this kangaroo court uh, to try to find Jesus guilty of something. So there were some dissenters. Uh, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever been laid before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. 
Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So one out of four is Jesus is buried. Jesus is buried. Uh, John 19, Nicodemus, who's also a Pharisee, right? part of that group, that religious echelon with Joseph, um, he, he's got a part in John 19. We, he's mentioned as well. And again, they dissented, right? And, and that's a, right? we, we use the term today, stereotyping, right? Somebody says, oh, these people always do this, or these people always think that. Actually, that's wrong. Uh, any group is not a monolith. People can think for themselves within that group. So there was some council members who said, no, Jesus has done nothing wrong. We're not going to be a part of this. A lot of people don't know that. But that's actually true. They just were like, we're, we're not going to be a part of this. They were, you could say, low-key disciples of Jesus. They teamed up with the women, right? Because we see the women a lot, to take the body and give a proper burial in Joseph's tombs. The plan was, and again, there's a lot of details here that are often overlooked by fast preaching or fast reading, is that, so what they would do, and again, I'm, value judgment it was horrible you know horrible to treat the dead this way regardless of what they had done when the crucifixion victims had passed they would take them down and you know put them in a cart and throw them in this collective heap uh, and they just would let them rot and then collect the bones at a later time so the followers were like yeah we can't can't happen to jesus so they went and they tried to get the body they got permission and we'll talk about why Pilate gave the permission. It was very smart on his part, but he didn't get the results he was looking for. So they, they take him down. Uh, they start this uh, process of a, of a dignified burial, a dignified burial using the spices and herbs, and um, they were going to finish the job after the Sabbath. So that's what's going on here. Now, we don't hear much about Joseph, we hear some about Nicodemus, right? We see that in John chapter 3. Uh, but certainly these people took a risk of openly saying, yes, we were followers. Yes, we would like the body. My conjecture is that being council members, they may have been a little older than Peter and John and the fishermen and such. Um, they weren't maybe as fully ambulatory as the younger disciples. And maybe they couldn't keep the pace of following Jesus physically wherever he went but he did joseph did something at the end that nobody could do right a lot of people weren't wealthy back then somehow joseph had the ability to have this hewn out tomb and it's an expensive tomb we see this in isaiah 53 700 years before the question is what can we do for the lord right we all have different gifts different talents some of you are very talented in some areas gifts and talents i don't have you don't have to do this up here, right? Collectively, you'll do more than I could do. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, right? Well, what can we do? I've got to be honest with you. Uh, it was last week I visited a young lady who's perishing from cancer. And, you know, I spent a good part of the day there ministering to that person and had the sermons and I get very busy. And there are little things around the church I just can't get to. Even the light in the men's bathroom, one of the lights burned down, it was dark. 
And uh, I've got people that will get up. I mean, I could do it. I get up on the ladder. I just couldn't get to it, right? Sometimes uh, people do things with the lead. Like this has been going on for weeks. And I'm so blessed because the people who are taking care of those things are happy that I'm doing the things that I do. See, we all do something different. Someone could have, and I've seen this, generosity. When we were ministering uh, Hurricane Sandy, we went down to the shore. Literally everywhere we went, people were taking their sheetrock and stuff out of their basement and putting it in a big garbage pile. There was somebody who donated a substantial amount of money. We converted that to uh, home improvement store credits, and we started giving them to the people. We fed them. That was amazing. That was amazing. So, listen, we can all do something. Right? There's some that say, I don't have, I'm barely making it financially, but I can volunteer my time. Right? We, what are we doing? We, we're talking about food for the soul on Friday. Right? We're going to do the Thursday outreach to the state home. And when you see the faces of these people in the state home, their eyes light up when we come and bring them food. And your love in the kitchen, my wife doesn't let me in the kitchen because I'm not very good in the kitchen. Everybody's got things they're good at and things that they're not. Uh, but your love that you put into with the preparation and the turkeys, and, and I tell you why, you guys bring it Thursday morning and it's like the smell is amazing. The whole church smells incredible. But the love that you put into that, we deliver it to them and your love is delivered to them. You see? You see how this works? And that's when a ministry is doing it properly. So you had, you had Joseph, you had Nicodemus, you had the men followers, you had the women followers, right? We can all do something, even the shoeboxes. Today and tomorrow are the last days of the shoebox collections. I think last year we, uh, we're, we're now a major distribution point, a drop-off place for New Jersey. After us, it goes to the plane, and they go all places of the world. I think last year we collected uh, over 2,000 shoeboxes, 2,000 gifts to kids who have nothing. You know, I, I, sometimes I actually have to, and I say to my wife, I have to pinch myself. And I say, I love our church. <laughs> Not, yeah, right? You know? Not in a prideful way, because the church isn't me. The church is us collectively. I love it. I love to see the people coming together. And sometimes people look at what I do here and think it's a big deal. And I say, no, what you do is so needed and so wonderful. Their volunteer work is invaluable. So Jesus had these people too, right? He spoke about, he said something about them that they would do things collectively, aggregately, right? Because he was fully God, fully man. He was in a man's body, had to sleep, had to eat, had to rest. And he said that they, when they received the Holy Spirit, they would go out into the world, that collectively they would do more works than him. Collectively, right? You can't outdo God. They couldn't do some of the things he did, but collectively and aggregately, numerically. Powerful stuff. We also constantly read about many of the women followers. The women followers are everywhere in the Scripture, right? They they were a huge part of Jesus' ministry from following him to preparation to being at the crucifixion to being at the tomb to being there with the other followers before jesus ascended into heaven right and um you know the planning the furthering of the church they were tremendous help to the apostle paul chloe's household right chloe's people 
hey, uh, Apostle Paul, we got some problems over here in Corinth. You got to address them. And we got 1 Corinthians, thanks to Chloe's household. Priscilla, um, the church, uh, there were churches that were started when there were no men believers. The ladies got together in mass and they started the church. Uh, all women, right? In these different areas. That was very brave to do back then. Phoebe. Phoebe did a lot of things for the Apostle Paul personally, delivering letters and such. Phoebe was awesome, right? I love that stuff. And why do I even bring this up? It's sort of a little aside because there are just so many lies today. Lies. Constant lies. You know, I went to college for four years and you know, I still have my science textbooks. I enjoy science. I enjoy higher education. I'm not knocking it. But in some of these places, your kids will go in and come out and like, where do they get this stuff from? Does anybody read history books anymore? How are they espousing these views? You know what I'm saying? And I've heard this rarely. And I have, you know, ladies who come back to me. They're going to college. They're like, hey, my professor said this. Help me out. Give me a little ammo here. And I usually say to them, I'm going to give you the information. I'm going to give you the sources. But don't push too hard because they're vindictive. They'll drop your grades. Right? And th- this happens, right? So, you know, uh, actually somebody was preaching. Was it Dr. David Jeremiah, might possibly? I like some of these preachers. And he said, in the New Testament, there wasn't a woman that Jesus encountered that he had a negative experience with. So he was just, yeah, they, were, they were tremendous help. And when the church started, women were in roles that traditionally, prior to Christ, they didn't have. So I just, ladies, I just want to put that out there for you. So it's good stuff. If you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to give you some information. In Matthew 27, the religious leaders, right, they come to Pontius Pilate, and they basically say, so, again, disrespectful, they don't believe that Jesus is Messiah. So this person... This Jesus said that when he died, he would rise again. So we need a guard to stand in front of the tomb with the stone roll to cover the the entrance and guard the tomb so his disciples don't steal the body and say, oh, look, he rose from the dead. And Pilate granted that, which is common sense. Think about the common sense. People say, well, the Bible can't be read. Like, come on, let's just, let's investigate. Bible can't be real. Why would Pilate do that? Because if you're the religious echelon or you're the Roman government, you have a problem if all the followers believe he's going to rise from the dead and you have an empty tomb. You have a major problem on your hand. And as much as the Roman government tried to squelch this, try to tamp it down, it did become a problem to the religious echelon and the Roman government. We see that from the history books. To the point where some of the, uh, the Caesars, the uh, emperors, had to put edicts of death on the Christians because it was spreading so quickly, including in their own ranks in the Roman government. People were getting saved. So they, they just, more they pressed down and pressed down. Was it Justin Martyr that said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? As many as they threw into the Colosseums, this is all history. They just kept multiplying. What do we do with these Christians? This is ridiculous. There was only a few of them that started. So, you know, there was a whole movie that we actually showed here, movie night, uh, around the Roman guard, his point of view, and what he saw, and what he was told to do, right? But if the Roman and religious leaders, I'm sorry, if Roman and Jewish historians both agreed to the life of Jesus and the crucifixion, 
These are extra-biblical accounts. These people aren't even believers. And they're saying, yes, Jesus existed. Yes, He did these miracles. Yes, He was crucified. And um, he, again, they don't claim to be believers. This makes perfect sense. This is actually might be the only thing that Pontius Pilate, because he was at enmity with the religious system, this might have been the only thing that he and they agreed to ever in their weird relationship. They had to work together. So check this out. Pontius Pilate says yes to Joseph. And again, people would say, ah, the contradictions, let's flesh it out. Pontius Pilate says yes to Joseph. You can have the body, sure, take him down. He also says yes to the religious leaders and says, yeah, sure, I'll get a bunch of guys over there with swords and shields and, you know, we'll we'll, we'll guard the entrance. Pontius Pilate tried really hard, because think about this. If the Lord's body, first of all, it was prophesied, (laughs) fulfilled scripture. If the Lord, you know, people say, Pastor Joe, you're the only weird person who thinks about all these possibilities. But if the Lord Jesus, they took him down and put him in the pile with the other bodies, his followers could say, he's risen, we can't find him. Romans are like, we can't find him either because he's, he's in that pile, right? He's not properly embalmed, uh, you know, not clean, the, the decaying process. Nobody could know whether this was true or not. So Pontius Pilate was actually very smart in that he said, yeah, yeah, sure, take his body, go put it in the tomb. I have no problem with that. And the religious leaders say, oh, yeah, yeah, we need a guard in front of the tomb. Oh, yeah, it's a great idea. So in his mind, I don't have a problem anymore. I've got him in the tomb, right? And I've got my guards in front of him. So if anybody, this starts getting out of hand, just move the stone. Hey, here he is. He's been here the whole time. But he wasn't. There was a, time, a, a class I took at Rutgers. I, I remember a lot of my classes, and this was decades ago. It was called Logic, Reasoning, and Persuasion. I don't know if they still have that class. If you are a student there, you can look through your curriculum and let me know. That was a great class. So the funny thing was I wasn't a believer in college, and I took all the sciences and the logic, and I just had a great experience learning. But when I became a Christian later on, I actually took all that learning used it with my investigative skills, being in law enforcement, to figure out that this is, these claims are true and I need to do something about this. I need to follow the Lord. And everyone has to go on that quest if you're honest with yourself. So uh, really, really neat stuff. And, you know, it's, it's all good. Verse 1 in chapter 24 It says, now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men, or what appeared to be two men, stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, the women, the Men said to the women, or they were angels, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Ladies, do you remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man, right, speaking about himself, third person, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, uh, the other, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. 
and their words seemed to them like idle tales, fairy tales. And they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So two out of four is Jesus is risen, right? Mark 16, 3, right? And again, I love doing this, taking all the Gospels together, uh, interspersing them, juxtapositioning them in a, in a chronological fashion. Mark 16, 3, the women, let's go back a little bit, the women are heading to the tomb, and we'll talk about what, they were, what their intention was, and they ask themselves, who will roll the stone away from the entrance? So they're like, their intentions were good. They're bringing the spices, they're bringing stuff probably to clean the body more, etc., decent burial, but they know there's a stone there, and they know that there's no way the few of those ladies can move that stone out of the way. However, when they get there, it's already done. <laughs> their plan was post-Sabbath, right? Sabbath, still, still, you know, Jesus is, we're not sure what's going on with Jesus. He's dead. Um, probably in the back of their mind, we really hope he does rise again. Still under the old covenant, in a sense. Sabbath is the day of rest. We can't go Saturday. So we're going to go Sunday. And they come with sort of, I guess you could say, uh, naturopathic embalming to slow the bacteria, give the person a decent burial. And today we actually do it internally. We use formaldehyde, drain, the blood is drained, and there's a process, the body's cleaned. Um, you know, if you go to the funeral, they're, they're, they're dressed. And everybody has their customs. But back then, it was more of a, they would clean the body, remove any blood or try to cover any trauma. And then they would use natural spices and herbs and oils and things that would slow the bacterial growth, right? Fascinating stuff when you think about the different cultures who did this. So this is what their, their idea is. Um, I will say that the women were braver than the men by going to the tomb initially. However, why do you think they went there? To find the body, to clean it up, to embalm it, give the Lord Jesus a decent burial. However, he said to them, third day I'm going to rise. So, they, again, I would put them at a higher level of faith than the men, but they also went there not thinking that he would be risen. Think about that. When you, see, you see the conversation back and forth with the, uh, with the angels. Um, verse 4. So, the, again, the, the two guys they run into, again, that's their expression. There's like these shining garments. There's sort of these two guys there. Um, can't really figure out, like, what's going on here? You know, am I, am I dreaming this or whatever? Uh, but the Old Testament gives us precedent on the angels, right? It gives us precedent that uh, you would see an angel come and they would, could change their appearance to look like, to look like human beings. So a few reasons why we know they're angels. A, they roll the stone away. In order to do that, the soldiers had to use a fulcrum. It's all physics to get the thing and to, you know, to transfer the weight and to get it to actually move. It was a very strenuous thing. It could be thousands of pounds, depending on how big and thick the stone was. B, according to Matthew 28, their mere presence frightens the hardened soldiers guarding, uh, guarding the tomb. So soldiers, battle-hardened guys, tough guys, a company of them, they see these, see these two figures and they're frightened and they end up leaving. C, the, the two angels know intimate conversations of Jesus and his followers and 
they weren't there. So in other words, well, they, they were there, but the women don't recognize them. They didn't say, oh, that's, uh, that's Fred and that's John. You know, hey, they're with us. So you've got a bunch of ladies. They don't recognize these two, what appears to be men. But now they're starting to have a conversation with them as if they were there during the intimate conversations of Jesus and his followers. So when you put, put logic all together, you realize who they are. Right? And the evidence is overwhelming. And we find this, that the angels announced the birth of Jesus and here they announce the resurrection of Jesus. Pretty neat. Kind of close the loop. It's full circle. Um, I'll just say this. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. Boom, 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 boom. Hey guys, this is heavy. Nope. Stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out, but it was rolled away to let witnesses in. It's empty. It's gone. He's not here. And Peter and John end up getting there and uh, they see the remnants of the clothing. And Peter is kind of scratching his head like, well, like what's going on here? So uh, we also know that Jesus could have, he probably did. In John 20, it shows that Jesus uh, walked through, was able to walk through, uh, you know, walls and stuff in the atomic realm. He was able to just pass through them because, you know, that's his, his glorified body at that point. He can do things it couldn't do when he was in the flesh as our flesh. Uh, so it's it's resurrected, it's it's changed, uh, it's 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 an eternal body. Okay, I'll say, I'll tell you this too is that you know even for what I did for a living for twenty five years, you know, you could still this is kind of morbid macabre, but for several days before the pro- the death process, you could still if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they could still have found the body and produced it and ended Christianity. And it would have been in their best interest to do that. But even when a person has perished, you can still make the connection through a lot of things, right? Not just appearance. So the angels seem to wonder why the women were surprised that Jesus is gone. They should have expected to see the empty tomb. So the angels jog their memory in these close conversations that Jesus had with them. And, and one of them is in quotes that Jesus says to them, speaking about himself in the third person, Son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. But let me ask you a question. Because we can easily go back in history, and after 2,000 years of having preachers and Bible and Bible study and codified Scripture, and we can say, what's the matter with his followers? Why didn't they believe? Do we ever get to a place where we know what the Scripture says and we panic anyway? Do we ever get to a place where God's Word promises us certain things and we, of little faith, fail at times? We all do. I have. You know what I'm saying? But I tell you, I sleep, I fall asleep a lot easier being a believer because back in the day when I didn't know the Lord, I would be like laying in bed and worrying about what's going to happen next day and this and that. I just don't do that anymore. I'm like, you know what, Lord, you got it. Am I, do I have a 100% track record? Nobody does. But Hebrews 13.5 tells us, the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? It's initially in the Old Testament. It's reiterated in Hebrews 13. Uh, my wife was just telling me about Psalm 139 this morning, that one of the, her favorite scriptures that she holds close to her heart. We all have those favorite scriptures. And in times of stress and trials, right, we have to hold on to those scriptures. 
So yeah, the angel said to them, hey, you know, don't you remember? You talked to Jesus. Remember the promises He made? Sometimes we have to say to ourselves the same things. You know, do we remember the promises God made to us? Right? What is in Scripture? We've enjoyed 2,000 years of having it all. You can flip through it. You can have it on your phone now. You can find Scripture at a touch. <laughs> right? Uh, so it, it's neat stuff. Verse 5, He is not among the dead. He's not among the dead. He is alive. Right? He's also not a, among dead rites and rituals. Dead religion. Right? He is alive. He has given us His Holy Spirit. The vibrance of the Holy Spirit. You know, the gifts of the Spirit. Um, again, like I said before, you can all use your gifts to bless other people, to minister to other people. And I'm sure, I know for me, before I was a believer, there were others who were Christians. I wasn't. They used their gifts to win me to Christ. Right? It's, it's you know, God doesn't need us, but He loves using us, and I love to be used by Him. Verses 8-12, through 12, the ladies come back to the men and they're thrilled, right? That's my impression of it. So they, they run back and probably ran back, and the men now, the followers, are not receiving what they're saying. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> so, but Peter and John, right, at some point run to the tomb. In John 20, it tells us that. Um, John runs to the tomb, but gets there before Peter because he ran track in high school. Just kidding. Just want to see if you're awake. I don't know that he ran track. Uh, but the majority of doubt comes in when people experience trauma. Right? I do a lot of study in you know, the brain, and it's pretty uh, fascinating stuff. And you, know, you, you, you experience trauma. You, know, you have your limbic system and your prefrontal cortex that it, it puts you in this loop of worry and anxiety. And it's you know, your... Uh, what was this? The frontal lobe is the one that's trying to get you to reason. And sometimes you fight with yourself about the answer. This was traumatic to the followers of Christ. It, it absolutely was. And I'll say this, that, um, and I hear people say this, right? And you, you'll find, oh, Pastor Joe, you get used to me. In my sermons, I counteract foolish arguments that attack the Bible or Christianity, right? So, People will say, well, you, what you believe is a fairy tale. Fiction, a fairy tale. I've got to be honest with you, when I was a kid, I used to read fairy tales, and the endings were always great, right? And, and all throughout the book, it was just wonderful, and everybody was on board. And here, you have a lot of problems. You have, it, and initially, nobody believes. Women were doing a great service, but they didn't believe either. The men are hiding. The women are heroes, according to what the Scripture says. And in that culture, it's not because God designed it. People say this, oh, it's misogynistic. It's the, the way the culture was. Women were not the heroes of stories. But here, the women are. They're the messengers. They're the one who get to see Him first. Right? Jesus is on the earth for 40 days. He's really busy doing a lot of stuff. Because you know, persecution's coming. He's got to shore up all those believers that it's really Him. And he's really resurrected. Pretty wild stuff. So, you know, if somebody was writing a fairy tale, they did a really poor job here, I have to say. And there's other things too that, and as the Lord stays longer on the earth after the resurrection and, and pre ascension, he's got a lot of work to do with the believers, shoring them up. And, but 
aren't the believers like us? They weren't perfect. They were frail. Right? Don't we sometimes need to read the Scripture a few times? Don't we need to hear a similar sermon by different pastors about a certain subject that we're just not getting? As human beings, we can be stubborn. It's one thing to have a body and a mind that do great things, but your spirit is saying, hey, um, you've got to come along here. You know, you're, you're, it's sort of a learning curve where you gotta, it's got to be absorbed uh, multiple times. That's why the Bible is called the living word. I've got to tell you, I've been teaching the Bible for over 20 years, and sometimes I teach uh, a book that I've taught before, and I'm like, wow, I never thought of that before. How could I never th- thought of that before? It's been over 20 years. How many times have I read the Bible? And God's like, hey, I'm going to give you something new. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, that's really cool, Lord. And I don't take credit for it. It's, it's Him. So it is the living Word. It isn't say, oh, somebody says, oh, I, I read the Bible. <laughs> like, I read the Bible and I put it down. No, it's, it's our life bread. It's our life source. Amen? So the resurrection leaves such a powerful impression on the Lord's followers that in Acts 20, verse 7, Sunday becomes the day of worship by a largely Jewish church, which usually their day was Saturday. So Sunday, the first day, was so powerful, people were so blown away that they just naturally started to come together, partake of communion, go through the Scripture, break bread, fellowship on Sunday. That's how powerful the resurrection was, right? Why would so many hundreds of thousands in the Roman Empire, maybe more, just go to the Colosseums when the emperor is just saying, worship me, bow down and worship me. We can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? You know it's punishable by death. Well, we know that the Lord is risen. Send them to the Colosseums. They could have stopped that. Again, this is secular history. It's all through secular history. Why did they pick on the Christians? And initially, they started as a small group. Why was there so much persecution against them? Because they refused to bow down to a man or a woman when they knew better. They knew that God is real. The Roman system was a totally secular humanist system. They had their pantheon of gods. Nobody really followed it. Uh, They kept adding gods. It was so ridiculous. Um, And there was no life in it, right? There was no peace in it. So this is what's going on. Uh, I will say this too. If you have an experience with Christ, your life will change as well. Your life will absolutely change. You know, when I think about uh, back in the day, right, when I was in my teens and early 20s, I was not saved, right? So, but I, I look, sometimes, a, a, I don't know, a song on a radio, radio will come up or I'm doing something, a memory will come up about old Joe, right? My old life. And I'd be like, man, that guy was a deranged lunatic. <laughs> Who was that person? Oh, I hope people don't remember people that still know me, right? Um, so you, you look at that, but if you would have told the old Joe who didn't know the Lord, if God would have given him a glimpse of the future and he was here, the old Joe would have ran for the hills. He would have said, who's that deranged lunatic preaching God's word? That's weird sharing your faith with other people listen it didn't happen overnight folks so just be patient with yourself a little counseling from the pulpit be patient with yourself enjoy the lord new believers enjoy that one-on-one with him when you're ready he'll show you what he wants you to do amen so good stuff there all right three out of four is only jesus fulfilled all Only Jesus fulfilled these hundreds of prophecies spoken about him before he even reached the earth. 
um, taking human form. I want to read Isaiah 53 without exposition, without exegesis, in other words, without teaching it. And I've never done this before. I actually taught Isaiah 53, and it took me a few Sundays, because a lot of it, there's symbolism, there's outright uh, you know, specificity uh, about what the Lord would do in the future. And um, I just want to kind of read it in the block. Now, this doesn't even take into account Psalm 22 and the other scriptures in the prophetic works in Genesis and, you know, this, uh, the Torah and all that kind of stuff. So let's just go to Isaiah 53. And you could picture Isaiah, you know, God's telling Isaiah, remember Isaiah 6? And he has this, this encounter with God and God's like, yeah. He, he sees God and he's like, well, I'm so blown away. Lord, what do you want me to do? He gives him his marching orders. Isaiah is one of the largest books in the Bible. He's uh, under the major prophets. He had a lot to do in his day. But I can imagine him. Now, forget about, this is like roughly 700 B.C. There is no Yeshua. He's not here yet. Um, so put that aside. Right? I know it's going to be hard. It's impossible for us to forget that. But he did not see the Christ yet. And he's writing this. And he says this, or the Lord says through him, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him, both capitals, translated, you know, a word for God shall grow up before a word for God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him, because it was on the inside. Our culture could learn something from this. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Who is this person that so many people despised? Didn't really apply to anybody at the time. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Who could do that? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So he does all these good things, but... Smitten by him, that doesn't make sense. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Wow. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the, the iniquity or the sin of us all. So he's la- the sin is laid on him. This, would not, this wouldn't be the high priest. This wouldn't be any of the Levites. This wouldn't be the king or any of the prophets. It's too powerful. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. What a paradox. So much good, but so much bad at the same time. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Joseph of Arimathea, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Who can say that? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, whoa, now we're talking blasphemy. Because there's only few prescribed way that this could happen unless fully God, fully man, he takes the sins for us. Because no person could do this. Because we see that in other scripture. Not possible. Where was I? <laughs> it's so powerful. Uh, yet it was, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, put him to grief. When you make a, wait a minute, yes. 
When you make and his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That sounds good again. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied for his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many. Justify is a powerful word. Only God can do that. For he shall bear their iniquities. Here we go again, bearing the sins. Who is this person? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Think about this, folks. God's bruising them. He's afflicting them, but he's bearing people's sins. But, you know, you talk about, this is all about paradoxes, okay? Enigmas, um, puzzles. What does this mean? Only Jesus fulfilled these things. Pretty neat stuff. First Peter 1 uh, is a very fascinating scripture. It actually talks about, as the prophets were writing, that they didn't always know what they were saying. So God tells Isaiah, write this down. Okay. All right. Don't fully understand it. Don't understand a lot of it. But God said, write it down. And it said that the, these are things angels desired to look into. So even the angels were like, whoa, the master is he's putting something together. Hey, let's take a peek. Let's see what he's writing. Right? Let's see what this, how this turns out. It's powerful stuff. Four. Four out of four. Jesus was very busy. So I'm just going to give you a little taste of what we're told, taking all the Scripture into totality of the things that Jesus did after His resurrection and prior to His ascension in those 40 days. A. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene on her way to the tomb. John 20. B. Jesus appeared to several women coming from the tomb. Matthew 28. C. At some point, Jesus appeared to Peter. Luke 24.34, which we're going to cover the next time. D. Jesus appeared to two men on their way to Emmaus. Luke 24. We're going to get to that. E. Jesus appeared to the apostles in the upper room in Jerusalem, Luke 24. F. Jesus appeared to the apostles with Thomas. Remember Thomas? There's no way I'm believing this. First the women, now you guys. No way. I need to see the marks made by the, you know, I need to see the piercing. I need to, I'm just, whatever. You guys, I've just, count me out. Jesus comes. He tells Thomas specifically to put his finger. So the person who had the weakest amount of faith was Thomas. Doubting Thomas, right? They all got to see and like, oh, it's the Lord. We're good. Thomas is like, no, I'm going to put my finger in there. I want to see that it's really real. And that's what Jesus does. And Tom sa- Thomas says, translated from the Greek, hakoriasmu kai hathiasmu. It's all Greek to me. But what that means is, uh, if you look at the Granville Sharp's rule of Greek grammar, Thomas was expressing immediately his belief in, in Yeshua as deity. The Kai is, it takes both parts of the structure and it causes an equivalent when both of the way the, the verbs and stuff are, uh, and the, the nouns are constructed, it's what's called an equivalent. Cool stuff, right? So Thomas was immediately convinced that he was deity. G, Jesus appeared to the apostles of Galilee, John 21. H, 
Jesus appeared to 500 believers at once and appeared to his half-brother James, who initially didn't believe in him, but did believe after he was resurrected. Well, that's really something. James and you could see, you know, Mary and, and his brothers were, they were looking for him, right? And Jesus was continuing to preach. He didn't push everybody aside because of his biological family. And there could have been a resentment built up by the brothers. I don't know. It's conjecture. However, certainly you're going to believe that he is who he says he is when you say, wait a minute, he was crucified. Well, I definitely believe. And James wrote a part of the scripture based on that. So here's somebody who maybe thought his brother had delusions of grandeur. Who wouldn't? And he's resurrected. He's like, okay, I'm in. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, Jesus appeared to his followers just prior to ascending into heaven after 40 days of being on the earth. Acts 1, 1 through 11. J, Jesus appears to the apostle. Well, he wasn't, he was Saul at the time on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, but this appears to be post-ascension. This does not, listen, when we do these studies, you, you got to take, if you're new to the church, you can get it on the website from Luke 1 all the way to Luke 24, and we build a case. That's what we do here on Sunday mornings. We build a case for this. Every block on the foundation is another block. On the, you know, so there's a foundation, and this is how we build the house of our belief system. And I've, I've gone through Phlegon and uh, Tacitus and Pliny the Younger and Josephus Flavius, and all these, none of these people believed. They, they weren't followers of Jesus, but they wrote about him. So that's pretty powerful stuff. There's a lot to a lot of evidence. And this is the reason why Christians, sadly enough for them, went to the Colosseums, then abandoned Christ, pushed by the Roman government. This is why somebody sent me an article about it in China, the CCP. They harass Christians. They're getting baptized secretly in streams and lakes. There's millions of Chinese Christians who are under persecution. Christians in Iran. Christians in North Korea, if you could imagine it. I mean, they, why, why? If this isn't real, just change your religion. Just worship this. Because uh, uh, Kim Jong-un, Jush uh, is their sort of religion where, you, you know, it's communism. A lot of our students today are falling in love with communism, but <laughs> man, you better really flesh this out completely. Jush, uh, you worship the leader, dear leader. He's a god. He's not a god. He's going to die and stand before the real god. But why wouldn't Christians in these places just get off of it? Just do what the government tells you to do. Because they know better. Because they've had a real live experience with Jesus Christ. People say to me, this church is in our, there's Christians in Iran? Don't write there are. Powerful stuff. So this, again, doesn't put in a dent in all the evidence that's there. The fact is, he is risen. He's risen. And again, I'm not knocking anybody, but if you look at any of these other religious leaders and stuff they started, there's still there's sepulchers, there's tombs, there's graveyards of religious leaders all over the world. Jesus is the only one where you can go in there and realize he's not there. If he was, the Roman government would have, through a, an information campaign, would have put this all to rest. It would have been done. When does the, the, the political realm and the religious realm 
go arm in arms to try to destroy something really through a disinformation campaign, they would have done it. They had the power. They had the, the authority. They were the ones who brainwashed people. But they couldn't stop Christianity because He is risen. I'll leave you with this. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. 17 is very important too. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Humanity, people ask me, why would God, what's happening? The human race has already condemned itself. Just pick up, just go home and look at the news. You're seeing a little snapshot of the evil that goes on in the world. And human beings were given free choice. They were given the planet. They were given resources. They were given law. They were given rules by God. And this is where we are as a people in 2023 in the world. However, there's a way out. And that way is to trust in Christ. He's paid for your sins on the cross and mine. He loves you that much. What are you going to do at this point? You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.